start by mentioning that I have a friend who is a senior manager in the NHS. He's also a practitioner. And he told me a while ago about ways in which he is trying to motivate staff and how senior managers try to motivate staff in the NHS. And he explained to me that you could break down the workforce, and I'm sure this would be true of most organizations, into certain types of people. He said there is a chunk of people, as there is in any organization, who are really there just to pick up the paycheck. They do their job, but they're not overly motivated or interested or inspired beyond that. And then he said there's a group of people who have what he described as an I'm great mentality. These are people who take great pride in their work and their skills. They seek to do their jobs very well. But the point of having an I'm great mentality is that in doing that, they like to be personally recognized. They are keen to get advancement for themselves on the back of doing a very good job and putting in lots of effort into what they do. But that means that while they individually can be very driven and very capable and do their job to high standards, they are often reluctant to share what makes them so. Because their insights, their extra skills, their knowledge is what gives them the edge over everybody else. If they gave those things away, then they themselves wouldn't stand out quite so much. But there is a third group, he said, a smaller group that he described as the we're great people. Those are the people who want the NHS to be great, who want to be part of something that is really excellent. And they understand that that will only happen if everyone else around them is as good or even better at their jobs than they are. They understand that the better the organization is as a whole, the more everyone benefits. And my friend said his job is primarily to move people from an I'm great mentality to a we're great mentality. And so it's sad, isn't it, in the church of all places that Christians can sometimes be driven in their service in the church by an I'm great mentality. Ministries that are guarded as personal territory for the sake of reputation. Wisdom and insights that are not shared because of insecurities. Assistance and help held back because it is fear that another's success might in some sense diminish us. Well, let's read this passage from Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 18 in the chapter. And at its heart, there is a great example of people who rejected an I'm great approach to ministry. So let's read. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived in Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. 
After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. May God bless to his reading of his precious and inspired words. So we're continuing on in your series on Luke's great account of the early church and in fulfillment of Jesus' promises and indeed his instructions in chapter 1. We've seen how the, Jew, the gospel has been preached to the Jews and to the Samaritans and is now making its way out into the Gentile world, into the non-Jewish world of the first century, even as it goes to that ultimate fulfillment to reach the ends of the earth. And chapter 18 at the beginning began with Paul arriving in the great city of Corinth in modern-day Greece and spending eight months there, or 18 months there rather, in verse 11. And now in verse 18, where we began our own reading tonight, it's time for him to move on from Corinth, to go and to check in, among other things it seems, with his sending church back in Antioch, verse 22. And he leaves Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, a couple that he had stayed with in that city, fellow tent makers. But just before he gets on the boat, in verse 18, Luke notes an intriguing detail, doesn't he? He says, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. Sincrea was Corinth's eastern port where you would leave if you were heading east over to Israel and to Syria. And Luke doesn't explain the background to this or what the vow was about. He just kind of drops it in as a kind of, oh, by the way, which of course makes us evangelical Bible readers uh, a bit concerned. We find that kind of thing a bit disconcerting. I mean, making vows, shaving your hair or your head, all sounds a bit Old Testament, doesn't it? Isn't this the stuff that Paul himself railed against in his New Testament letters? That kind of external religious trapping. In fact, didn't Jesus himself tell us not to make oaths back in the Sermon on the Mount? So what are we to make of this little grenade that Luke just drops in and seems to walk away from at the start of our reading tonight? Some think that this was just a very much an error on Paul's part. I mentioned this to somebody this morning who was asking about what he was preaching on, and as soon as I mentioned it, he said, yeah, that was a terrible mistake by Paul. Yeah, he would have regretted that later on. That just shows you that even the best people get stuck in the past uh, and get things wrong. Well, would Paul regret this? Was it a big mistake? 
possibly. We're not told, so wouldn't want to make a great doctrine out of this either way. But I'm not sure that we're necessarily to read this as some kind of theological faux pas by Paul. After all, he was pretty red hot in this issue everywhere else in his ministry. So it would seem odd that he would slip up so unnecessarily at this point. Let me suggest there are a number of things that we could bear in mind here as we think about what's going on. Firstly and most importantly, I think we can safely assume that whatever Paul is doing here, whatever he was doing this, he was not in any sense doing it in order to gain some extra divine favor for himself. Paul was absolutely fierce, if you read through the New Testament, in rejecting any religious ceremony or paraphernalia that was put forward as a way to gain credit points with God. So any suggestion that your diet or observing holy days or taking part in rituals are in any sense a necessary part of being acceptable to God, of being forgiven, of getting closer to God, of having Christian assurance, are given short, short shrift by Paul. So for Paul or anyone else, cutting off your hair will add absolutely zero to the sum of your personal holiness. It will move you not a millimeter closer to God or having a deeper relationship with Jesus. So Paul was clear on that, and I think we should be clear on that too. That said... Where the gospel was not in danger of being misunderstood or misapplied in that sense, Paul, we know, was prepared to be culturally flexible, especially so as not to hinder gospel opportunities. Paul was a first century Jewish man. He worked in and out of synagogues. That was very much the bread and butter of his ministry at this stage. And in that regard, of course, he would want to be sensitive to Jewish customs where the gospel wasn't at stake. For example, supposing somebody came to faith from a Muslim background and went on to be an evangelist among the Muslim community, we wouldn't have any issue, I think, with them continuing to take their shoes off if they entered a mosque from time to time as part of that work. Not because they still regarded it as holy ground, but simply to be respectful and accommodating. So Paul might have been in a situation where it was helpful to observe a Jewish custom without in any way compromising the gospel for the sake of continued gospel opportunity. But what about Jesus' condemnation of making oaths and vows back in Matthew chapter 5? Well, the context there, of course, is the making of grand, ostentatious pronouncements that invoke the name of God, using oaths and vows as a substitute for your own personal integrity or being personally trustworthy. When I worked for Strathclyde Passenger Transport for nine years, I had a colleague And when he was under pressure or he was being challenged about something that he said he had done, he would often resort to saying, no, no, honestly, I swear in my Wayne's life, I did it, I swear in my Wayne's life. Now, the reason he was kind of forced back to making 
a slightly kind of bad taste pronouncement like that and feeling you had to go to the kind of ultimate kind of level of commitment was because he was a big windbag the rest of the time and nobody believed him most of the time. Jesus is saying, don't be that kind of guy. I don't think Jesus was suggesting that we could never make a commitment or make a promise. It might have been that Paul did this, had taken this vow with the hair cutting, just as a pragmatic aid to his personal devotional life. No, I don't know, but I'm just suggesting there are a number of explanations here. Today, for example, you might set yourself a giving target. You might commit to a reading plan, perhaps with others. You might wear a wristband to remind you to pray about something. Now, there is absolutely nothing holy about a target or a book group or wearing a rubber bracelet. But I suppose they could be helpful as long as they are not confused with heart devotion, with a real relationship with God, with a clear dependency on Christ and Christ alone. So, take your choice, take your pick there. But like Paul, we need to push on. The first leg of his journey from Corinth, verse 19, takes him to Ephesus, of which much more is going to be said about in future chapters. But at this stage, Paul is really just planting a flag in Ephesus, to which he'll come back later on in his travels. Because he's clearly a man on a schedule, verse 21. He said, I promise I will come back if it is God's will. But he then heads off to Ephesus, landing at Caesarea. Uh, He set sail from Ephesus, landing at Caesarea, and went up to greet the church in Antioch. And this little section of verses 19 to 23 gives us a summary, if you like, or uh, the itinerary of Paul's work and travel and ministry at this time. And very simply, this passage is helpful because it sums up Paul's work at this time as evangelism and discipleship. He's reasoning in the synagogue in verse 19, and he's strengthening the disciples in verse 23. And I think that's helpful because sometimes we can overcomplicate Christian ministry and Christian work, and we can add so many considerations and layers to it that we forget what it's all about at that most fundamental basic level. Christian ministry is essentially quite simple. It's telling people about Jesus so that they might believe, and it's encouraging those who do believe to keep on believing. And that, in essence, is what Paul does in his ministry. He reasons in the synagogue, he shares the gospel with people in the market square, and then he goes and he strengthens the disciples to encourage them to keep going. However, look now as readers wants to shift us back to Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila have stayed on in verse 19. And it's here that we're introduced to Apollos, native of Alexandria, verse 24. Alexandria, of course, in modern-day Turkey, Ephesus, rather, in modern-day Egypt, and Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. So he had made that trip across the Mediterranean. And Apollos is introduced to us in chapter 18, really in terms of an up-and-coming dynamic church leader. 
You notice his characteristics in verses 24 to 26. He is a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. That would, of course, be the Old Testament part of the Bible for us. Another translation puts it, he was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. Secondly, we read that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus in this context. And he spoke with great fervor, or again, as another translation puts it, was fervent in spirit. He taught about Jesus accurately in verse 25, which is always good to hear these days, of course, isn't it? And in verse 26, he preached boldly in the synagogue. He was a fearless evangelist to boot. Well, what's not to like about Apollos? A kind of case of when can you start? However, there is an however in this glowing description about Apollos, isn't there? And that is in verse 25. Though he knew only the baptism of John, which means that there are gaps in Apollos' knowledge, in his ministry awareness, in his theology. What he did know was spot on, but there were things that he didn't know that he wasn't aware of, important things. I mean, clearly he knew about Jesus. We read that. He would have understood and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That is, that Jesus was the promised Savior sent from God, the one who was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises and prophecies. He knew John's baptism, that great call for men and women to repent, to turn again to God in the light of this coming Savior, in the light of the fact that God was fulfilling his promises to send a deliverer, a king, who would rescue his people, who would bring in the kingdom of God, who would deal once and for all for the besetting sin of every man and woman in every age, the problem of human evil, the sin that resides in your heart and mine. He presumably knew, we can take it from the context and from what is said, that he knew of Jesus' teachings and miracles. Very possibly knew about the death and resurrection of Jesus too. There's no reason to think that he didn't know about those events. But did he know all the implications of those things? as were then spelled out by the apostles, as the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance the things that Jesus had told them and had told them during those days between the resurrection and the ascension. Did he understand what we would call New Testament teachings about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about living in grace, about the great mission to the Gentiles? actually about a whole lot of things that would be necessary if the gospel was going to be applied and worked out effectively going forward in his ministry and in the life of whatever group of people he pastored and taught. Now, of course, some people might have looked at Apollos as he arrived in Ephesus and said, this guy is a self-starter. He is bristling with gifts. Who cares if his theology is a little bit lopsided? He's got the basics. Just let him get on with it. Others might have looked at Apollos and felt a little bit superior, 
pointing out some of his shortcomings. They might quite have liked the thought that they could get one over this new kid in the block at the midweek Bible study. But fortunately for Apollos and for the church and for us, Priscilla and Aquila were on hand. Because this was a couple whose big concern was to see the gospel flourish, to see it fully flourish, who knew that healthy Christians need the whole gospel, who knew that a little or incomplete knowledge can be a dangerous thing, especially in a teacher. So many of the things that trouble the church, that send churches off the rails, which cause problems for Christians, that introduce confusion and harm, are because somebody has got hold of one truth, but they've forgotten about other truths that need to be held together with it. So they invite Apollos to their home, and we read that they privately start to instruct him in verse 26, explaining to him the way of God more adequately. Starting to share with Apollos all that, op- all that apostolic teaching that they themselves would have learned from Paul. And there's no sense of any public credit taking here. No sense of Priscilla and Aquila out to enhance their personal reputation. Rather, they see Apollos as a key potential gospel worker. And behind the scenes, they go about the business of working with him and investing in him to see him strengthened and developed in his ministry. But also crucial, of course, is Apollos' own attitude in all this, because he is somebody who is teachable. He is open to this investment, to this training, to further instruction. That, of course, takes a bit of humility, especially if you're as gifted as Apollos clearly was. Humility to acknowledge that perhaps you don't know it all, that others maybe can teach you a thing or two, that there are things that you still need to learn. We all like to think, don't we, that we are the world's expert on ourselves. But actually, there are lots of aspects of ourselves that we have huge blind spots about. That's why we need other people who can speak into our lives, who can point things out to us. Because left to our own devices, There are lots of issues that we just won't see. We need to listen to other people, as Apollos was prepared to do. Be prepared to adjust ourselves, adjust our thinking, adjust our ministry in the light of the godly wisdom and input of those around us. Let me just make two observations from this passage about Apollos, this encounter with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. First thing is, very simply, that great gifting is not a substitute for biblical understanding. Indeed, great gifting without biblical depth is often a recipe for disaster. And the danger, of course, is that great gifting can deter that very input. Such people can seem so sorted and so successful that it can just feel presumptuous or patronizing to suggest that they might need still to be a student themselves. 
Such people can sometimes get so much affirmation because they are gifted that they can be tempted to think that they are complete and they're above needing further input or anyone else to speak into their lives. But no one, of course, is above needing to learn more. None of us are beyond instruction. I love it when older folks go to Bible night classes or courses. I love it when church leaders just attend stuff and not because they've been invited to speak. Because it's a great model that at whatever age and stage of life we are, we need to be open to learn. That we are not complete. That actually God can still challenge us. That we might still have blind spots. That there are still things that God wants to teach us about. So great gifting is not a substitute, never can be a substitute for biblical understanding. But secondly, that investing in others is to invest in the kingdom of God itself. You see, it's great that Priscilla and Aquila were not I'm great people. But they had a bigger vision. They knew that giving away what they had, their insights, their wisdom, their knowledge, their skills, wouldn't diminish them, but would ultimately bless them. They knew that if Apollos was as knowledgeable and as primed for the gospel as they were, then the body of which they were part would be all the healthier. That the family of which they were part would be all the stronger. That the building, that temple of God of which they were part would be all the more glorious. Said about my friend at the start and his motivational work in the NHS moving people from I'm great to we're great. He told me that a few months ago, and then I just saw this weekend that he'd obviously been speaking at it at some conference because people were tweeting him, giving him thanks for the talk that he had done at some staff day. And one of the tweets, and it was so providential, it just came through last night, and I wrote it down in the handwriting at the bottom of my notes, was this somebody kind of summing up what he had been saying in that context, but obviously just grasping the heart of it so brilliantly. And the tweet was, if you can do it on your own, it's not big enough. That's a great lesson for Christian ministry, isn't it? That's a great challenge for all of us involved in serving the church and seeking to use our talents for God. If you can do it on your own, it's not big enough. We need each other. We need others. We need to be part of something that is more than us. We need to be more than just I'm great people. And of course, if this was just a motivational talk for the NHS or a business, I might conclude at this point and just sign off now and say, so folks, don't be an I'm great person. Rather be we're great people. And that way we'll all be better off. Which of course is true and good wisdom and something to hold on to when we think about our contributions and helping others. It's a good outlook for any organization. But of course we're not the NHS tonight. We're not a business tonight. 
we're the church of God, which means that we have another level in this thinking. The level that eclipses any notions of I'm great and even of we're great. Because for us, what matters is that he's great. And that is exactly the message, of course, that Apollos is then out to pre- Apollos is then sent out to preach in Achaia, verse 27, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. He is the savior. He is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, that you and I exist for his glory. Because for all his talents, Apollos knew that he wasn't great. He was a sinner saved by grace. That's the message he went out and preached, verse 27. And for all Paul's and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos' efforts, they knew that any church dependent upon their talents was going to quickly falter and crumble. But they knew supremely that they had a great Savior, that they served one who was supremely great. Jesus, the one who gives all gifts to all people to build up his church. Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus, who establishes his church, having loved her and given himself for her. Jesus, who is the treasure house of all knowledge and wisdom, given freely through his spirit for his people, that they might mature in love and in grace and in service. Jesus, who is building his church to the praise of his glorious name. We serve, we give it away, we invest in others because he is great. May God bless to us his words. Amen.